to look at your, the Word of God. Father, we do thank you for your church, the one we call Stonebridge. We thank you for the men and women in this room, uh, folks that are watching now or who will watch in the days and weeks ahead. We thank you for technology and how it can be a force for good. Uh, we thank you for your love that you forgave while we were yet sinners, that you loved us when we were unlovable, that you love us still, that nothing we can ever do or have ever done would change the way you love us. We do not understand it, but we are grateful. Thank you for the men and women here, those who are uh, joyful and encouraged and glad to be here on a beautiful fall morning for those who are struggling, who are separated from a loved one, who are going through hardships, unemployment, challenges at work that are untenable, uh, all the different issues that surround the family and the family of God. I pray for your mercy and grace in lives. I pray for a steadfastness on your word uh, to have courage no matter what our condition. Help us as we look into Proverbs for a few moments. In Christ's name, amen. Throughout the series of the book of Proverbs, I have reminded you that uh, chapters 1 through 9 are essentially introductory material. It, they are lectures. That's probably the best way to think about it. It's a corpus of lectures to establish what we're going to read today. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. So chapter 10, 1 begins the staccato, the terse, the repetitious, the simple of reminders that we have in this book. They are packaged like witticisms. They're packaged in a memorable way. The English uh, Western ear hears rhyme and meter and music as we sing something. We tie it together. The ancient Near East mind was a little different. Uh, not that they didn't have music and meter. The way they were taught was structural more than the way we think of a rhyme or a meter or a measure. So when we read, especially wisdom literature, we need to keep that in mind. These are more than a collection of quotations that are randomly disorganized, and that's often how they're approached. It's a body of material. Keep in mind, uh, arguably the wisest man on the planet at that time, Solomon, Christ being the wisest, but Solomon being on the planet at that time, puts this together. And so if you're really brilliant at something, you put, forgive me, the cookies on a lower shelf. I had a, a British literature professor that I loved so much, I ended up taking several courses from him. And I took a class on world fiction. And he began the first uh, part of that course with lecturing on what we were doing with these 11 novels from around the world. Uh, George Louis Borch and uh, uh, Albert Camus and um, uh, Parl Lagerwitz and all these books, Chaim Potok and uh, James Allen. Each of them had a different uh, country, a different point, and he laid a foundation for how to read this literature. And then going forward, it was uh, interactive. He expected you to read the book, and then we sat in class and he asked questions. James Allen's book turned the screw. Prove this is a ghost story. What? Prove it's a ghost story. Well, show me passages. And little by little, he infected me with the love for reading that I attribute to my ability to go to grad school and read thousands of pages and then love to study and love to learn. I wrote him letters over the years thanking uh, Professor Howard for teaching me uh, how to think. 
Uh, he was much wiser than this dumb college kid. And he set a foundation for me to read and love reading. And so when I got to seminary and had a professor who taught me to study the Bible, I was given a foundation in God's great kindness, already had some of those structures in place, so I knew what to do. That's what chapters 1 to 9 have done. Um, teaching someone to do something, especially someone wise and someone who is simple or naive or young is interesting. When we flip the scales, it's more complex. For a younger person to teach an older person, it's very interesting. My dear mother, she's, she's passed away, as had my father, but my dad died in 2010, mom died a few years later. And uh, she purchased a SUV, she drove a minivan, and uh, someone told me uh, when my parents died, they said, watch what your mother does first after your father dies. And she came out and she goes, I want to sell the minivans. They had two of them. I said, I thought you loved those minivans. You've had them since 1985. I hated those blank things. That was your father's idea. <laughs> I learned a lot in that one colorful sentence. So we got rid of the minivans, and I helped her. She wanted a sedan. Well, she's about 4'10 by this time because of osteoporosis and so forth. Very little woman. And uh, I said, Mom, you can't drive a sedan. You're not going to be able to see over the dashboard. I want to drive a sedan. So long story short, we ended up in a small SUV. And I helped her buy it, and it had a little seat you could adjust. Well, inadvertently, she would get in it and hit the lever, and the seat would sink down. And then she couldn't see over the dash. Watch one, do one, teach one. Mom, let me show you how to do this. It's real simple. You push this lever, and it goes back up. And it goes down. Accidentally, you push it again. Now, you do it. Now, you tell me what you're doing. This did not go over well. And uh, next time I went to visit, she had four pillows on the driver's chair. <laughs> Mom. All you got to do is push this little thing over here. She was never going to learn that. My nephews, my brother's sons, came to visit. My older brother, Steve, had sent her um, these subscription services of DVDs that were of old films. She loved old films. And, of course, they're not on television. She doesn't have cable. And so, um, long story short, one of my nephews was trying to explain to her how to play the DVD because all the DVDs had never been opened. And her name was Grandmare. Her name was Marianne. My dad truncated it to Mare, and so she was Grandmare. It was a great name for her. And so my nephew took pictures, went to Kinko's, printed out color pictures. Uh, number one, circle, press this button. Number two, next card. Number three, how to play a DVD, how to go from the TV to the DVD player. They laminated them. They had them illustrated. They put them on a reinforcement ring so it was, they could flip through them, and they hung them on the TV. You know how many times you watched the DVD? Why do I tell you these two stories? At the risk of sounding more ornery than I normally do. Our present generation is not interested in what older veterans, tired Christian believers, believers who are scarred, believers who have lost and learned in life. Broadly speaking, older Christians are marginalized. 
Um, we can't text as fast as you do. We don't know how to use Instagram like you do. We use Facebook. Who uses Facebook? All them old people. Uh, my oldest daughter who helps me, I said, Hannah, how do I do a story versus a thing? Don't, Dad. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Teach me how. No. And, you know, it's like her, me teaching grammar. It ain't going to work. Without apology, and not to be too indelicate to you younger folks, um, there's a lot of wisdom in spite of our inability. Uh, war, shop-worn older Christians, we're, we're not Solomon and we're not inerrant, but we've got a lot to offer. And we can save you from a lot of pain. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 12, if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If, if you're, and if, if you scoff, you alone will bear it. It's a very chilling proverb to me. It's essentially saying, you know, you're going to benefit from this, but if you scoff, you're going to be alone. Um, my father, who died in 2010, had a lot of sayings. Any of your parents had these sayings that they said over and over and drove you nuts? Any show of hands? Just a few of you. My dad had a whole litany of sayings that I hated as a child. And I bequeath them to my children as they've gotten older. Um, and one of them was when you get into an argument, and I can remember vivid arguments with him in my teens and early 20s. And we would argue about all kinds of things. He, was, he, he would provoke me as he did my older brother. He'd provoke us. And we'd take the bait. We'd be in this big argument. You could be completely right. And then he would summarize and end the argument by saying, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich? Which tells you a lot about my father. And it was both condescending and it stopped the argument. And then as my brother and I became more successful than my parents, um, our houses were nicer, our cars were nicer. We traveled on planes more than they did. We went places they never went. Um, he was not happy. It was very difficult for him to watch. And so he would make sarcastic fun of us. And I say that again to try to illustrate what we're going to look at in a moment. When you look at what Solomon is going to tell you, you might kind of fold your mental arms and say, yeah. When you look at older men and women who love Christ, who are far from perfect, and we are not inerrant, and we're not Solomon, but it's to your loss to not listen, to not ask. Um, some of you will know Dick passed away a year or so ago. Joanne King passed away not long ago. When I got to talk to these men and women before they passed away, I bemoaned that I didn't get to know them a lot better before Jim Gifford when he passed away. I was sad I didn't know him more. Don't have that regret. Take advantage of the gray hair around you. And yeah, we may be ornery, and we can't text, and we can't post, and we can't keep up, but don't dismiss it out of hand because there is a lot there to offer. 
Proverbs chapter 10, we now move, and Bible students and scholars will try to organize these, and we'll look at some categories in the future like family and wealth and you know, other things. We'll categorize friendships as a big one. But I want you to notice we're not trying to... Uh, the, the body of wisdom literature, as I've argued all along, is different than anything else in the Bible. It's different than Psalms. It's different than a narrative. It's different than the Gospels or Paul didactic's teaching. So you've got to keep that foundation, like my professor taught me, in mind before we jump in. Is that clear enough? Made the point? Let's look at some of these things. And I'm going to show you two things today, two technical terms. They're not that technical, and they're actually what uh, Christy has already given us. The first is antithetical parallelism, like Christy did. Say it with me antithetical parallelism. And we're going to look at this to explain it. In chapter 10, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. That's the heading. And now we have the first proverb. A wise son makes the father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Antithetical. We've gone from wise to foolish. We've gone from glad to grief. And don't miss the little one. We've gone from father to mother. So, the parallels are two different things. Make sense? This is very simple once you see it. The term is big, antithetical. It's a parallel. So they're different ways of making a point. It's beautiful when you start to see these things. The uh, wise son is a benefit, but the foolish son is a grief. And the author is juxtaposing these two. So that's antithetical. Let's look at the opposite synonymous parallelism. Antithetical different, synonymous synonyms. Simple enough. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So pride and haughty are similar, right? They're not antithetical and destruction and stumbling are similar. Make sense? You see what I'm showing you? I know it's a little pedantic. And the reason this is important is not just to increase your vocabulary or give you new things to say. I mean, you're probably not going to say, I was thinking about antithetical parallelism this week. I mean, you're, you know, you're probably not going to use it. But when you read these Proverbs, don't rush. And I don't want to overcomplicate it for you. But I want you to see through a new set of lenses, those of you who've gotten contacts or glasses after your cataract surgery, and you go, I can read the chart. Uh, that's what I'm hoping you'll see without overcomplicating it. So teaching through the lists could be tedious and very repetitious. Organizing wealth, family, friends could be helpful. And we'll try to sort through that a little bit as we go through some of the Proverbs. Today, I'm just going to show you seven. I'm not going to spend a long time on them. We're going to go real quickly, and you're going to see how easy it is for your still. You'll, you'll see these things very quickly. Again, the first one, and I've given these sort of working titles just to give you another handle. You can do your own. You can ignore them. But each of the seven points begins with a little title. Wisdom, Affects, Others. Wisdom affects others. Chapter 10, verse 1. Again, let me read the proverb. The proverb of Solomon. That's just the heading. A wise son makes a father glad. A foolish son is grief to his mother. Again, antithetical parallelism. Um, I would argue, not too strongly, pay attention to the overarching principles of wisdom. Now that we're getting into this, this staccato of witticisms, 
he starts out with this one. Scripture is always deliberate. It's always intentional. And the first one he uses is about a child and his impact on his family, on his parents. Um, again, if you haven't been with the study, the simple and the naive in Proverbs are generally speaking a white marker board. They have not yet embraced wisdom. We would say they have not yet trusted Christ. The fool and the mocker they're not irredeemable, but they're more than likely not going to embrace wisdom. So that's how the Proverbs differentiate. The simple and the naive are, are typically the ones who can still learn, that could come to God, could come to Christ. The fool and the mocker, uh, they're not irredeemable, but they're not interested in the truth. I had a um, I forget what it was, Instagram or, tw or Twitter recently, some young man, he was a college student, come after me on some post I made, and he kind of mocked the, the Dr. E or whatever it was. And I wrote back and I said something like, I don't engage typically, but this one was intriguing. And I wrote back and I said, uh, what'd you expect? And he wrote back this nonsensical comment. And I said, well, I forget what the next tweet was, but then he kind of, you know, kind of put me in my place. And I said, I'll get to work on it. He was a mocker. He just wanted to share his opinion that he should have kept to himself. But that's what social media is for. Sharing your opinions that you should probably keep to yourself. This is a cumbersome quotation, but it's rich. Let's look at Derek Kidner. He makes this claim. Your choice may be lonely, it cannot be private. This fact throws its light on the problem of unmerited suffering by its reminding, reminder that without the ties, or at best their love, by which people are members of each other, life would be less painful but immensely poorer. Now, this is a $50 quote in my where I traffic. It may not hit you where it hits me, but I want you to pay attention to his first comment. Your choice may be lonely, it cannot be private. When you make a decision, when you follow after wisdom or you follow after wickedness, it's always the way in Proverbs, wickedness or righteousness, the wicked woman or the wise woman, you know, the path of the sinner, the path of the godly. It's always that differential in Proverbs. And Kidner is observing, it may be lonely, but it's not private. And this, this is such an interesting concept. Less painful, but immeasurably poorer. Let's put this in real simple terms. Uh, those of you who are single and lonely, it's good to have some other single friends, not meat market, but other single friends who are following Christ. You newlyweds who said, I do, and now go, what have we done? Need couples that are two, three, four years ahead of you. You young couples with your first baby going, ah, need a couple that has two or three babies ahead of you. Um, our oldest daughter, Hannah, has three, and, you know, she knows what teething pain is now. She knows what a clear nose is versus, uh, you know, a yucky nose might be. She knows a lot more, 
She's not nearly as stressed as she was with the first one as she is with the third one. You know the old story about the first child drops their pacifier, you pick it up off the floor, put it in your pocket, sterilize it at home, give them a new one. The second kid drops it, you stick it back in their mouth. The third kid, you don't even do that. You just stick it back in their mouth. Because you're learning along the way. When you have teens and middle school kids, you need some godly Christian friends who are four or five years ahead of you who survived raising middle school and teen. When you have your first son or daughter break your heart, you need a family who's had a son or daughter break their heart. When you lose someone you love, you need someone who's lost someone they love. The body of Christ, why I make you shake hands, you need each other. The monastic period was an epic failure. You need others. And Kidner points this out. Verse 12 of Proverbs 9 that we read, you will bear it alone. What a sad place to be. Well, let's continue looking at these. Secondly, righteousness always profits. Righteousness always profits. Verse 2, ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. We're going to have dozens of references in Proverbs to money and wealth and how it's used, how it's used the wrong way, how it can be used the right way. Um, And this benefit versus problem is a big part of wealth in Proverbs. Um, ill-gotten gains are hollow. They're not going to last. They have no staying power. But righteousness not only has staying power, there's a hint here, it's eternal. When you watch someone else that uh, makes a lot more money or maybe even an evil or ill company that exceeds you or eclipses you, you can sort of be like the Old Testament prophets. Why do the wicked prosper? And you can you know, wonder. I, I remember one of my professors saying this early in school, and boy, did it come true in, in my lifetime. Uh, I, I wonder if the reason God doesn't give more Christians success and fame and power is because we're so poor at handling it. I've, I've met a lot of people that are uber rich, and uh, it's interesting how their identity can be either their money and power or just a person. And it's a world of difference because why? Everybody wants something from them. Everybody expects something from them. They want to be them. It's like that in any field. And the proverb says, ill-gotten gains don't profit, but righteousness, he doesn't say profits, he said it delivers you from death. It's eternal. Now, Here's where the, the rub comes in, and I would give you my lowercase you know, footnote proverb. Your experience will always tell you otherwise. My experiences in the Christian life rarely align with the truth of Scripture. Um, you can do the right thing in the right way and still have a disastrous outcome. You can treat people well and do all kinds of things, and still have it be a mess. So if you and I are looking at what Jason often talks about, a moralistic, therapeutic 
culture, you know, when you're looking at it this way, relativistic, moralistic, therapeutic. Um, it's I, me, my. It's how I feel. It's how God called me, how I'm wired. That's really dangerous thinking because your experience will always tell you otherwise. I love it when a Christian says, you know, well, God led me and guided me and this happened and they did this thing and then it blows up. And I had the strongest urge to go, so how did God lead and guide and direct you to this disaster? And on a handful of occasions, because of my relationship, I have asked that kind of question. And invariably, the answer is, well, God had to take me here to learn a lesson that I wouldn't have learned if I hadn't made this bad mistake. And I want to go, you're nuts. You're nuts. Because you're saying your experience and the way it didn't work out was the only way you were going to learn X lesson. God's not a God of confusion. God's word's clear. So don't let your experience drive you. Thirdly, the Lord satisfies the righteous. Verse 3. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the cravings of the wicked. Antithetical. The righteous versus the wicked. A hunger versus craving. They're antithetical. Now, quick sidebar. If our, our, our pro presenter, the way it brings in the scripture, you see the Lord is all capital letters. In your New American Standard, and I was corrected, in your ESV, it's going to have a capital L, and then the ORD will be small, case, small caps. So capital L, small caps, ORD. That's not just a convenient thing. What they're doing is telling you what word Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, because there are different words for God in the Old Testament. So the way your English Bible renders those is keyed. And if you have a NASB and you read the introduction, it explains all that. The ESV, it's in the appendix. The most important eight pages of your Bible is to read how they came up with the translation. I interviewed uh, Andrew Cho, Dr. Cho recently, on the Legacy Standard Bible. It's a new translation. I said, why do we need yet another translation? And uh, they based it on the Lachman, which is the NASB. And we had a fascinating conversation, and they chose to always render the word Yahweh. Y-H-W-H is called the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew. No one knows how to pronounce it. The Jews don't like you to say it. And if you read any Jewish literature, when it comes to that word, they'll have a capital G, an underline, and then D. And they won't read that word in the sentence. It's called kathiv kare, what is written, what is read. So if they come across the name Yahweh, they'll say Adonai. And then the pious Jews will see, blessed be his name. Every time they read it. Every time they come across the word Lord in the Old Testament, they'll say, Adonai, blessed be his name. Blessed be his holy name. Which is kind of cool. Uh, but they don't feel they can pronounce the name Yahweh. Well, anyway, all that's for free. Now come back to what you're paying for. The lesson in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3, is the Lord is the one who satisfies your needs. Now, have you ever really, 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 really been hungry, starving, didn't think you were going to live? Unless you're a prisoner of war, um, Proverbs are not always. Proverbs are wisdom principles that almost are universally true in application. 
when I was in college, um, I worked part-time. I had roommates that made, had a lot of money. Mommy and Daddy gave them a nice big check to go to college. And uh, I'll never forget one roommate. We had to pay for our you know, rent and our utilities. We had phone bills in those days. And so we, you know, we'd divide everything by four. And I remember him opening his checkbook. And the balance in his checkbook was more than I made in a year. And I was like, I hate you. I paid my bills and the phone bill and this and that and the other. And if I had 10 bucks, I was the happiest guy in Nacogdoches, Texas. And my buddy Bill Laughlin and I would go to the Bonanza Steakhouse. And they had an all-you-could-eat salad bar. And they had a two ninety eight steak that they should have paid me to eat. It was terrible. You could play catch with the thing. It was terrible. And so we'd just gorge on the salad bar. The next Friday, if I had my 10 bucks left, we'd go to Church's Fried Chicken. And if you went about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, they're throwing everything away. So that three-piece became a five- or six-piece. Real nice to the help, they would give you a whole bunch of chicken. And so we'd go, and we would eat till we were ill, literally. If you eat that much fried chicken, you'll have a bellyache. Trust me. Can't stop, though, right? Silly story. I was never hungry. Even working two part-time jobs, I was never hungry. I didn't eat maybe, you know, what I'd eat today, but I always had enough. The lesson is the Lord is the one who satisfies your need, not what you put in your belly. This is a big concept for most Christians. Are you satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Period. I took a stab at paraphrasing this. The righteous will forever be filled, but the wicked will forever crave. I think it's a pretty good paraphrase. If you're walking with Christ, you'll be filled, not just your belly, but your life, your heart, your emotion, your desire. Your longings will be in check. Your anger toward what happened to you that was unjust will be in the right place. You'll be filled, but the wicked will forever crave. Fourth, diligence produces wealth. This is an antithetical parallel. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So this is a truism. The diligent will work, and it will work out for you compared to the one who is negligent. The word negligent means sloth or lax or lazy. Um, I don't know about you, but when we were teens, we were made to work. When we had our kids, when they were teens, we made them get a part-time job. And they were not happy. They complained about it because none of their friends had to work. And uh, we had uh, two who were here at Brentwood. Oh, boy, they were unhappy with me because I made them get a part-time job. You're going to drive a car? I'm going to cover the insurance. We're going to pay for most of the vehicle. And we were, we were very fair. We'll, we'll take care of the expensive stuff. Don't, and if you wreck it, we'll have a discussion. But we'll take care of the expensive stuff. But uh, you got to do this, this, this. And you got to put gas in it. We'll pay for church and, and uh, school. Anything beyond that, you get to put gas in it. And that means a part-time job. Oh, they were not happy with me. Nobody in Williamson County has to work like us. And I, well, that's not my problem. Your problem, if you want to drive this car, 
you're going to have to have a non-negligent hand. You're going to have to go to work. It's a great place to teach them a lot of things. Verse uh, 5, number 5, diligence demonstrates wisdom. He who gathers in the summer is a son who acts wisely. But he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Many take verses 4 and 5 together as a unit, and that's fine. Uh, I don't think it hurts either way. But we have an antithetical one here again. We've got one who sleeps versus one who's working, uh, one who gets up. Um, the, the, the disgrace of frustration, of hopes and expectations for anyone has to change. Um, if, if you work hard in the right season, you're smart. If you're lazy, you're not smart. Um, it's, it's fallen out of favor um, because of the political correctness in which we're, you know, we're so careful about everything. But you, know, you, can't, you can't ever tell your child you're disappointed in them. Or you're ashamed of them. Because in today's vernacular, that's abuse. I would be careful how that language is used, but I would say there's a place and time to say, you have incredibly disappointed your mother and me. Now, let's talk about remedy. Don't just shame and guilt them. And I know I'm way up on a limb here. It's very different. Scripture calls it clear. If you're lazy, this is what happens. It's shameful. Back to the first proverb in chapter 10, verse 1. It's a disgrace to the parent. It breaks the heart of the parent. Sixth, righteousness brings blessing. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. This is a simple contrast between rewards and, and what happens when you live one way versus another. Um, the, the word here for violence in Hebrew is the word Hamas. And I didn't have time to finish my etymological study on the word term, but I don't doubt that it is connected to the idea of what terrorism is often called Hamas, because it's about violence. And finally, seven, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. It's interesting based on the blessing and the memory are contrasted. If you know the story, and you have to be careful with the story because it's a little overworked, but you know O'Hare Airport is named after Butch O'Hare? Well, he had a brother named Easy Eddie. And if you want to read a fascinating story, and be careful, some of it's fiction, but Easy Eddie versus Butch O'Hare and what they did with their life and what the end of their life was is illustrative of the memory of the righteous is blessed and the name of the wicked will rot. Well, that's just seven. That just primes the pump. Let's just get you going. And uh, as, as a body here at Stonebridge, um, we have the, the joy and benefit of commemorating Lord's table. And let, let me uh, pray and make a brief comment about that, and then we will enjoy the table together. Father, we thank you for the privilege.